Live from the WLIWFM studio in Southampton, New York on Thursday, November 30th, 2023. I'm Gianna Volpe. A nationwide shortage of mechanics began decades ago, partly because high school graduates were increasingly encouraged to pursue four-year college degrees rather than careers in trades such as auto mechanics or electricians, according to auto repair industry and career development experts. It will become more acute as older mechanics retire and advanced technologies that demand new skill sets emerge. Tori N. Parrish reporting on Newsday.com that the staff shortages have meant higher salaries for mechanics and longer wait times for customers seeking car repairs. Between 2002 and 2022, the number of automotive service technicians and mechanics in New York State declined by 7,260 or 19 percent to 30,750, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. Meanwhile, the number of vehicles in operation in the U.S. grew 16.92 percent to 290.8 million vehicles between 2012 and 2022. That's just the last decade. According to Jennifer uh, Mayer, the CEO of TechForce Foundation, a Phoenix-based nonprofit advocating for technical education and careers, in the next five to 10 years, there will be a massive exodus from the industry as older technicians retire and close their businesses. Uh, That, according to Amanda Funk, Associate Director at the Repair Shops and Gasoline Dealers Association in Albany. Some school districts such as Brentwood, Longwood, West Islip, and East Hampton here on Long Island have standalone auto tech programs to respond to the mechanic shortage. The Greater New York Automobile Dealers Association in 2005 built a $30 million, 90,000-square-foot training facility in Whitestone, Queens. The curriculum is administered by Lincoln Tech. It was the first facility of its kind built by new car dealers. That, according to Mark Sheenberg, president of the association before COVID, there were about 750 enrolled. Now there are 600 students, he said. In other news, two dozen Long Island school districts have paid a combined $28.8 million to settle 37 lawsuits by former students who say teachers, administrators, and fellow students sexually abused them, Newsday found. Districts paid former students between $5,000 and $8 million to end their lawsuits, accusing the districts of not doing enough to stop the sexual abuse. The school district's insurance companies during those times often either no longer are in business today or decline to cover their claims because the allegations date from so far back record show Jim Baumbach uh, reporting on Newsday.com that about 150 cases remain active. Quote, I don't think that districts are prepared in some cases for payouts for these kinds of settlements. That quote from John, uh, excuse me, Ron Masera of the Suffolk County School Superintendents Association. Masera also is the superintendent of Center Marich's school district, which is not facing any Child Victims Act lawsuits. New York state lawmakers in 2019 passed the Child Victims Act, which allowed childhood survivors of sexual abuse a one-year window to file a lawsuit for damages. Then-Governor Andrew M. Cuomo extended the window a year to August 2021 because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Before the law's passage, survivors were prevented from filing suit once they turned 23. The New York State School Boards Association has been lobbying state lawmakers to provide funding to districts uh, facing large payouts because their insurance companies from the time of the abuse allegations either are no longer in business or declined to cover the claims. Jay Warona, Deputy Executive Director of the State School Boards Association, said that local taxpayers, quote, shouldn't have to choose between paying these claims and cutting educational programming That just doesn't seem like a good solution here, end quote. And finally, in February of 2020, a little more than a month after Riverhead Town Supervisor Yvette Aguiar entered office, the town and the Long Island Science Center held a joint press conference announcing the development of a new museum at the former Sweezy's department store building on the south side of East Main Street and a town square on the riverfront to 
itself at the event, flanked by regional political figures, including Suffolk County Executive Steve Ballone, then State Senator Ken Laval, and then uh, New York State Assembly member Anthony Palumbo, the new supervisor, made an enthusiastic pitch for the importance of the partnership of the museum and the and the town for helping to revitalize downtown Riverhead. I remember this. Quote, a heart transplant for Riverhead is on the horizon, Aguiar said. However, Alec Lewis reporting on RiverheadLocal.com uh, that now, nearly four years later, the situation is much more complicated the Science Center purchased the property in April 2020. Both the town square and the museum's uh, designs have undergone uh, significant changes and have received public funding. The Science Center has not moved into the Sweezy's building, uh, nor filed an application to renovate the space. The town square that officials hope to establish, currently a grassy area to the east of the Science Center's building, is waiting on an agreement with a master developer who plans to develop the east side of the square with a mixed-use hotel building in Aguiar, once a public supporter of the Science Center, has turned hostile to it. Earlier this week, Aguiar accused the Science Center's, president's, uh, Science Center's president, uh, Lawrence Oxman, of being uncooperative with the town and delaying the property's development. Uh, that's just not true, Oxman said, who told uh, Riverhead Local that the Science Center decided to list the property in in April after it did not receive a share of Riverhead's $10 million downtown revitalization initiative grant award. The DRI local planning committee recommended the Science Center receive a $1 million grant. Uh, personally, I was super excited about the uh, possibility of some sort of observatory anything for the stars that they were – I thought that they were initially planning – uh, for the roof or top floor, but maybe I'm remembering that incorrectly. Either way, we're going to re- read the weather in East Hampton in honor of author John Sargent joining us to talk about his memoirs largely surrounding his career in publishing, Turning Pages. Uh, I got to recommend this book to all of my uh, journalism and, and publishing, people in publishing. Uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, at the bottom of the hour, ahead of his event at the East Hampton Book Hampton uh, this Saturday, looking like a sunny Thursday in East Hampton with a high near 49 degrees, southwest wind 9 to 11 miles per hour tonight, mostly clear with a low around 40 degrees, southwest wind 10 to 13 miles per hour. Right now it's 37 degrees, and you know I've got a turning pages edition planned around our chat with John Sargent. I even uh, figured out a way to get Sarah Conway's Christmas song uh, incorporated into the theme. Uh, We'll be talking with Sarah at the bottom of the next hour ahead of the Sag Harbor Chamber of Commerce tree lighting this Saturday. Uh, What do we got for you? Mark Hurd, Little Feet, The Birds, Ryan Traster, and Brian McSweeney in your immediate listening future. But first, little Benny Goodman close as the as pages in a book right here on Long Island's only local NPR radio station WFM the Heart Morning and Midnight show featuring music from all decades and genres and interviews with folks from all walks of life all because of you the listener supporter of Long Island's only local NPR radio station WLIWFM we'll be back
Little Feats, front page news, leading us to the bottom of the 9 o'clock hour here on Thursday morning, a little after midnight. If you're listening to the replay, it is an honor to have on our next guest, um, John Sargent, who has, uh, geez, met just about everyone, uh, including gone to bat many a time over um, uh, to protect uh, free speech, for one, I, I definitely uh, have to say, as a journalist and someone who is a lifelong, wanted to be in publishing, uh, loves books, et cetera, et cetera, this was a, a really, really great and fun read, uh, particularly because of your fearlessness and your frankness. Uh, we're talking about turning pages uh, John's memoir talking about uh, his life in publishing and life at large. I continually admired your fearlessness. Uh, you spoke yeah. frankly at times with folks, no matter how big they might have been. Uh, it was a beautiful look into you as a human being, uh, as well as those photos you included in the book and how candidly you shared details that might have been omitted by other authors, uh, you know, not only uh, moments from others, but from yourself. Uh, very refreshing, made for a stronger read, and of course spoke to decades spent uh, publishing others' books uh, no. next to uh, One White Sale. But speaking mm -hmm. of big, I guess let's start by uh, talking about that, the big idea meeting with, with Jeff Bezos, which of course preceded uh, the big uh, court case that you ended up uh, go, you know, going to bat for uh, or with Mac Macmillan uh, mm -hmm. against the government itself. Um, yeah. That, but that big idea meeting was a nice yeah. example of your ability to keep it real, even yeah. in, uh, when faced with some of the, the biggest people of all time, I mean, you, you you said, how did you greet President Obama with "Hey man"? <laughs> and, and <with> the... <laughs> that was just an embarrassing moment for me. I tell you, <laughs> it's it's funny. I it it reminded. Uh, there's so many moments where I saw myself and my father in you. Oh really? Yes. Oh great. <laughs> yes, I think I think my father, uh, pull, he has a rhyming thing 
like a nervous mm-hmm. rhyming, and he did it on the phone with the White House. I said, Dad, you did not. He said, oh, yes, I did. <laughs> All right, so, yeah. so so given how the big idea meeting played out, yeah. would you yeah. change your idea and how? there was You were, you were vague about you know, how uh, things went south and, and changed uh, with, with Amazon, uh, but I'm yeah. curious. Oh, yeah. So the, the, the big idea was this, this concept of uh, Amazon uh, giving publishers APIs to market their books because mm-hmm. Amazon is uh, it's just not very good at marketing, right? They're a great retailer, probably mm-hmm. best retailer ever on earth, but uh, they, they don't market their products well. So uh, I had that idea and now uh, and and Jeff liked it, but the actual getting it done was pretty complicated. Mm-hmm. And in in doing that, um the problem with Amazon was always they have this sort of uh, this urge to control every aspect of their their website and everything that's done on it, which I respect. Um I just thought it was a good way for them to uh for no money, uh, have us do the work of marketing the books. And it was a good, I think it was a good concept, but I think it probably broke down in the, them figuring out the details of how to do it. Uh, that's probably what made a breakdown. As often, uh, tends to happen, especially when you're doing corporate yeah. business stuff, completely divergent topic, but would you please tell yeah. me another, uh, Nikki, uh, how do I sell, say his name? Nick Byam Shaw. Yes, please. Uh, if you don't mind, he was, a favorite of mine, and uh, tell those about him who don't already know who this person is. Oh, he, he's just this uh, spectacular uh, British publisher. He he hired me, and he he went into the you know the navy when he was I don't know like eleven or something. He was really incredibly young when he went into the navy, uh, and because his uh, his father had been in the Navy and his grandfather had been in the Navy and he went off and, you know, he was in the Korean War and all this. And he just – he had incredible intelligence and and no training. So he figured everything out for himself. Right. So uh, he would uh, – he would – look at figures and look at business issues in completely different ways from everybody else. And all the while, as it turned out, all the while being incredible pain from this operation gone wrong. Right. Which he never let on to, you know, anybody. It was he's a remarkable man. He, he's he still would... alive. I still call him. I talk to him like once every couple months. Oh my gosh. Day. Give him our regards, please. Mm-hmm. All right. So I have to hear about working in the flat iron. Uh, (laughs) undoubtedly my favorite building in the city, as I'm sure it is uh, so many people. It was was amazing, right? Because it's most photographed, they say, the most photographed building in the world. At any time, I could look out my front window and see, you know, probably 40 or 50 people taking pictures of the building. And the space was – I had the office at the top, so it had you know 14-foot ceilings, and it had this balcony out in front that looked straight out to the Empire State Building. And uh, you know, it was just – it was remarkable. Every day I'd go to work, I'd open my office door and just go, holy cow, I can't believe I work here. Mm-hmm. And literally everybody who came to see me would come into the office and just go, oh my god. And uh, so it was it was uh, it was a a gift for me. It was just a gift for for, you know, 24 years to every day go sit at the top in the point and be able to most days uh, I would open the little door behind my desk and stand out the balcony in the front. You can't see it's a balcony. But if you look all the way at the top of the flat iron, the top floor that has the two columns in the point up at the top. Uh, there's an open space behind those two columns. It's only about, I don't know, four feet by six feet. That's tiny. But it's, um, you can sit outside. It's crazy because, the, you know, the, the true magic of, of the city uh, is at times um, uh, restricted based upon access. I mean, there are rooftops yeah. and, and offices from which you can uh, you can only see a certain vista of New York, and yeah. I thought what was incredible is that you made a point to share that gift before leaving. You made yeah. it known that if you want to visit and see 
or bring someone to visit and see, uh, come come to my office. Come. And, and I, I did it. I did it actually starting in the beginning. I just thought, you know, this shouldn't be one person's right. to have this. Um, and this is like, you know, it's a historic building and it's New York. And so I always let people come through. But, you know, I had the big title and I was going to run in the place and all that. So people were intimidated to do it. So uh, I always have my door open and people come in. But at the end, I said, just, you know, I told everybody in the company, uh, just come in, bring whoever you like. And if I'm working, leave me working, but come in. I'll wave at you if I'm on the phone. Uh, I'll leave the door open and just, uh, you know, to the balcony, I'll leave it open on, on the nice days and just come in with, with whoever. And people did, you know, I had this steady stream of people. It was fantastic. So, you know, you're like Blade. You're like a day walker. You know, you have, you ha- are someone who knows and has met uh, some of the all just about all of the the biggest names that one can can possibly imagine and yeah. yet you are undoubtedly uh a a a feet on the ground everyday man uh one yeah. talks uh for all <laughs> and yeah. and so despite your your publishing pedigree which which I hope you'll mention uh, a bit here. You you also say you never felt publishing was in your blood. So, you know, I feel like this all kind of ties together. Do you think that came from from growing up on the ranch, from the from the fact yeah. that you spent so much of your childhood in Wyoming? Yeah, I I, I grew up not with, you know, my. My family was, you know, my great grandfather started uh, Doubleday and made it the largest publishing company. By the time he uh, retired, it was the largest publishing company in America. And and you know, he was a remarkable guy. And my dad wasn't publishing, my grandfather wasn't publishing, my uncle wasn't publishing. But I, uh, you know, I moved to a cattle ranch in Wyoming when I was, you know, between the ages of seven and eight. And and I, uh, I didn't. I wasn't in that life. You know, I was growing up, I went to, you know, a one room schoolhouse and then I went to public school in Sheridan and, and, uh, I, you know, I'm, I, that's where I became the person, you know, you become the person you are in those years. Uh, and when you're growing up and, and I've always had a, uh, you know, a real affection for the people out there, uh, in Wyoming and, and that life. And, and so, yeah, I, I don't, I never, I never, I wanted to be a marine biologist. Right. Same. There was no urge. For, I, I had no urge to be a, a publisher until, until later on. And then of course, you know, I, 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 I love being in a business as you how say. Did, you meet, how did it happen? You meet a remarkable how did you, how I, couldn't did you decide get a job. To... I, I couldn't get a job when I graduated from college in 1979. There was a recession in, in 79 and 80. And uh, those who weren't around then don't remember, but boy, it was tough to get a job. Right. And you were a textbook salesman. Yeah. So I, 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 I couldn't get a job. So I, they offered this course in publishing. Uh, so after I graduated, I said, well, what the hell? I'll take, I'll take that course just to see what the family business is all about. And they had a career day and I got a, a, a job offer to be a traveling salesman. Yeah. And that's where I was. It, that's how it started. That's got it. That has to have informed and, and certainly uh, helped you in your role as CEO. Because I mean, a, a salesman is all about uh, making relationships and and yeah. and meeting folks from from anywhere and everywhere. Yeah. yeah, and selling selling you sell all the time. You know, no matter what your job is. Well, not all jobs, but most jobs you spend some time selling and you know, running a large company, you're selling, you're selling all the time. You're selling your publishing services to authors. You're selling uh, your books to retailers. You're, you're selling all the time. So it's good grounding. And I had, it was a huge territory. It was the entire, uh, you know, California, Oregon, Washington, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, Utah, Northern Colorado, I call it all of Colorado. Uh, So I, it was all cold calls. Right, you know the territory was so big. I'd leave home and I'd get back three months later. But what? And what a literally be- what every a beautiful, every day was spent cold calling. What a beautiful part of the country to oh, be yeah. driving through. Oh, 
Oh yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, I'd leave home. I'd leave home. I'd come back three months later, and I'd have the back of the. I'd have a station wagon full of book samples, and and I'd have you know my ski gear and and my fishing gear and all my stuff, and and I had a different hotel room every night. Now, t- toward the end of of getting books in the hands of retailers, I was raised by Chicka Chicka Boom Boom. It's it's ah. actually it's actually the fir- one of the one of if not the first book. I remember as a child, I can still remember yeah. the first time it was placed in my hands. It's one of the earliest memories yeah. I have. I loved the story about how you got the book into Barnes & Noble. Uh, please tell that story, yeah. but also the story of the book itself. Yeah, so it was a, It had been a little piece of a textbook, uh, and, and it was uh, – we – contracted to have it expanded into a book and the and what made it unique was the 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 colors the the the, the art which was really difficult difficult to to actually have printed in that bright a color and uh and the rhyming text of course is fabulous so uh we knew what we had we knew it was fantastic but so many times in the publishing business you get these fantastic books and they don't work they just they don't get enough momentum. They don't. They don't sell enough to get the word of mouth going. And you have, oh, you know, n- numerous books every year that you think are magic, right? Simply go away, and they don't sell. And Chicka Chicka Boom Boom was sort of in danger of not having enough momentum. And and uh, and this is the magic of publishing. You know, when you when you get a book that you you just feel. People have to read this book, you know. You got to know I about Black Eyed Pea. Yeah. yeah. Nowhere I, I, else does the alphabet get beat up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, so you have this thing, and you and you just know it's great. And and then what happens? It makes publishing a magic magic business. Is uh, people in the publishing house? You find others who also think it's magic, right. and then you get together, and then your combined energy. You figure out ways to simply never give up and just keep pushing that book. And and in in my uh, career in publishing, Chicka Chicka Boom Boom was uh, the biggest case of that. There were a couple others, but that was a big case. By God, we pulled out all the stops and did you know everything. And uh, at the end of the day, it's remarkable when I talk to younger people now. Um, it's almost universal that people know the book. Right. You know, if if you grew up in America at a certain age, you chicka chicka boom boom in your school, in the library, in your house, somewhere along the line, you usually ran into the book. So when you and, t- and it, it it just makes me feel to this day it is just so hugely rewarding. You know, a big a big a big uh, touchstone in your career. When you talk about big cases uh, and examples of you never giving up, of course, I'm thinking again of uh, that big court case where Macmillan did not back down uh, all the way to the end. uh, I was hugely uh, gobsmacked by, uh, you know, the judge coming to you and saying, you know, the the government uh, is wondering if you're aware that they can bankrupt your company. Uh, There were so many moments in this uh, in this memoir, where you really get the unfiltered truth about how things like the justice system, politics, uh, just about yeah. every every avenue that touches uh, publishing and and people uh, really work and really look like, and and I just want to say thank you as someone who has uh, spent spent my life and career uh, avoiding. The courtroom at all co- at all costs, uh, which has been something that you know, I, you know, I wonder, I I sometimes regret, and I think about you know my life and and how things would be different. Uh, hugely just um, ad- ad- the admiration I feel for you for being well, so you. fearless and uh, not backing down and 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 following through, and oh my gosh. How smart you were at so many <laughs> moments, uh, you know, really earning it and and making uh, wise decisions and understanding how to use things like 
the press and your own words and timing, yeah. uh, the letters you would write, uh, the decisions you made, and then uh, talking about your thought process at all moments. It was it was really uh, a, a special to read. Well, thanks. You're very welcome. Thanks. It's, it's, it is, uh, you know, I had the, I don't know if it's good luck or bad luck, uh, but I happened to be in the center of all the sort of major issues of the digital transformation right. when books were becoming digital. Right. Uh, and, and for whatever reason, you know, with Amazon, the Department of Justice, all these places, I was the guy who was sort of in the crosshairs. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, again, uh, hu- hugely rewarding uh, because, you know, it's a, it's a big, those are big challenges, you right. know, and, and, and you, you think about uh, the people who have to face that stuff. You think, you know, the, the politicians, you think, uh, I think, you know, uh, Joe Biden gets up and, you know, holy cow, Hamas has uh, has uh, gone into Israel and uh, attacked Israel, and you know you have to make decisions right. about what you are going to do that have this huge impact. And, and say in in my world, they had a lot of impact from my world, but there was no life or death or anything. It was it was uh, it was um, it was concern for the future books and concerned. For the future of authors being able to make a living, right? Which and is the decisions were driven huge, not by, yeah, were not driven by profit. The decisions were not driven by sales. It was not driven by any of that. It was driven by uh, protecting the business and the ability for authors to write books and publishers to sell books uh, in the future as you go through the digital transformation. Because we looked at music, and and you know, right. music was pretty bad. The digital transformation was pretty bad for musicians. But but toward the end of, of protection of the First Amendment, for example, uh, yeah. it was it was it was cool to also see uh, the inside of, of Fire and Fury and how that all oh, yeah. played out and the, the decisions you made there. Yeah, that the the you know the fact that a sitting president of the United States could. Uh, attempt through legal intimidation the stop stopping the publication of a book of a book about him and his administration it literally is the single worst violation of the first amendment there can be if you look over the supreme court cases they they repeatedly say that you know prior restraint stopping something from being published is uh the worst violation of freedom of speech, and and you know, Trump thought it was okay to to essentially send us a legal letter saying cease and desist the publication of this book, um, and the president of the United States is defined uh, in the court cases about the First Amendment is defined as he has the bully pulpit, he has the most power uh, to respond, right. uh, and therefore that single office is the one that has no protections against people saying whatever they want. Um, so it was uh, it was a remarkable moment. I, I at the beginning when it first happened, you know, we got the letter. I thought, boy, we're gonna sell a lot of books. You know, Yahoo, here right. we go. And then, like, literally within thirty seconds, when we start talking about it, I started to think, you know, whoa, this is actually how dictatorships start, mm. right? Authoritarian governments, the very first thing they do is they suppress the freedom of speech about negative things about their administration. It is almost always the first thing that happens. And I thought, wow, you know, we gotta, we gotta stop this and we have to stop it hard, you know? Well, I thank you for standing up, uh, especially as a journalist. Uh, I know my com law professor would be right with you as would uh, John Goodman (laughs) and and Big Lebowski and all of us journalists out there. All right. So, we, with the passing of Rosalind Carter, we we certainly have to talk about uh, the president builds a house. Yeah. What? A, what? A, Jimmy that, Jimmy that, Carter is you know Jimmy Carter is so uh, was so extraordinary as an ex president right. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of argument that he wasn't a great president, 
but you know as an ex president he was extraordinary what he what he would uh, what he would do and the his support of habitat for humanity was a great example of how remarkable he was right he didn't just support it and publicize it and all that he went for like a week at a time you know got his hammer out and and put on his tool belt and help build the houses side by side with the people who are going to live with him and uh, and with other volunteers and uh, on the other hand he he does have strong uh, strong sense of right and wrong and uh, he he was oh, he, not at all enamored of my you, of he my, caught you what stealing wood you're stealing yeah I stole I stole wood we were we were way behind and he had this huge you know it's his house the media is there all the time so. They're way ahead, and all the best carpenters are working with him and stuff. And so his his house is way ahead, and he has – you know, you can't have Jimmy Carter running out of supplies with the media there. So they had all these supplies, and we were behind, and, and we were working – you know, it was – I don't know. It must have been 11 o'clock at night, and uh, and we were out of two-by-fours. And so I said, you know, I'm oh, looking all so. over the place, and I look across, and we're, at the, we're building the house right next to his, and I look across, and – I think, God, I bet he's got two by fours in there. And I went in there with these huge stacks of two by fours. And I thought, you know, I'll be up before dawn and, and I'll, I'll replace oh him tomorrow God. morning and stuff. So I went in and I literally was walking out the door with him on my shoulder. And wow. He came back there. I missed Tim that. Carter, right? See, he I didn't came. realize you, you took from, you took from the, from President Carter, I thought it was yeah. like a lot, like next door. That no, no, I went, went, went right into the house he was building, right into the house, and I took, took him and, and you know, uh, typical Jimmy Carter, right? He was he was coming back from press. He had done a whole bunch of press stuff. He had done a fundraising dinner for Habitat in Milwaukee, and he was coming back before he went to go home to sleep. He was coming back to check on the work that they had done in the house while he was gone, and you know I had no I had no concept that he could possibly be coming back. And then you know he walked in on me. And he was not entertained. He got me no slack at all. Wow. And my favorite part is, you know, something that we share is that um, you you always in your most embarrassing moments you talk about it. You know, you, oh, yeah. you're like you're racing up Jeff. You're racing up Jeff Bezos' driveway, and you you almost hit his dog. And then you you make sure to mention it several times. It, oh yeah! It, it reminds me of like I would show up and I would I would be late to work or something, and and I would see my boss and I would say, uh, I I'm late today, and he's like, well, you know, I wouldn't have known that, Gianna. Yeah, if you just <laughs> yeah exactly. Didn't, didn't mention it. Didn't wear. It's like I, it's know, written it, on my it's, face. Uh, it is part of. Uh, I think those it's moments. endearing. You know, if you're going to be honest, yes, uh, that you have to share the the, <laughs> the good, the, the bad, and the ugly. Idiot, you know? Yes, yes. I loved it. I loved it. And um, okay, so we, I got to we 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 talked. We went well outside our ten minutes. I think that's okay. So turning pages, I'm I'm actually going to hop past uh, the birds. My back pages to play Ryan. Uh, Traster's turning pages from the Get Easy record of 2014. Before I let you go, John, uh, this Saturday you have an event at Bookhampton in yeah. East Hampton. What time are you guys getting started, and what haven't we talked about about your memoir that you want to make sure folks know? Uh, five five o'clock okay. uh, Saturday Saturday night at uh, Bookhampton in East Hampton. Uh, I don't know. There, it is. I tried to – what I try to do is tell the uh, very best – I've had this remarkable, uh, lucky, remarkable life of with working with all these incredible people. And yes. what I, I wanted to do was just tell the good story, so not and not anything that wasn't a good story. And the, the attempt was uh, to entertain, uh, to entertain as well as trying to pass on some, some knowledge or whatever. So uh, – I hope it. I hope it works. It totally did. I'm I happy that you liked it. I learned. I, I, I learned a lot. Liked it. I learned a lot, and that's uh, really where it. Uh, what turns my pages? I'm Gianna Volpe. That was John Sargent. This is Ryan Traster, and you, whoever you are out there, 
You are awesome. And you just heard the Thoughtful Thursday segment right here on the Heart Morning and Midnight Show uh, featuring music from all decades and genres and all uh, folks from all walks of life, all because of you, the listener, supporter of WLIWFM, donating to WLIWFM.org. Stay with us. Dialect, southern drum, country music on my radio, and it's a little strange that I can't complain. Down on back, Cumberland, waiting for my songbird friend, and she's running late, but it's She'll get me high And she'll say You Was wrapped up in a lie To pray from city life Why don't you come back home And breathe The air that helps you see That just because it's learned Doesn't mean it's true Last night, smell of rain, Casey's front porch, drinking gin, and it keeps my mind off path. Tonight, my friends sing a song of sin on the third verse. I chime in, how can you? Traster, turning pages from the Get Easy record of 2014, leading you into the NPR news break with Brian McSweeney. I'm Gianna Volpe, and you, whoever you are out there, you are awesome. You're listening to Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM. News you can trust, music you love. Showing everything we try to hide. I'm sorry, but I just can't be the Yeah, 